the writer of Ecclesiastes, who says, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. If you've lived long enough, you begin to see how true that statement is. That as things keep moving and progressing, there's really nothing new. It may look a little different, may smell a little different, but the same ideas are going on. And those who are wise learn from the past as we apply God's word to what has happened in the past. And as we see his unveiling of history in the scriptures, we think of things where our focus this morning is on this sovereign idea, this idea that God is sovereign and that the kings of the earth are not, that they function under his sovereignty. And yet there are kings of the earth throughout history who have ignored that. I mean, just one in recent years of Saddam Hussein, when he was still the president um, of Iran, he was the one who went into Babylon, into um, what was ancient Babylon, and tried to rebuild the temple, tried to rebuild the gardens, because he thought he was the direct descendant of Nebuchadnezzar II. He just thought he was a direct descendant of that king, because that king thought he was God. He should have read the scriptures, shouldn't he have? Because if he would have read the scriptures, he would have known that this king had this battle with God and his own sovereign will. He had the battle with God. Nebuchadnezzar himself did. And if he was going to be the heir of Nebuchadnezzar II in Nebuchadnezzar III, which he called himself. Now, that was a misnomer to begin with because there was a Nebuchadnezzar III in history. But if he was going to do that, he should have read all of Daniel instead of some of Daniel. He should have read all of the annals of history instead of just the ones that brought up Nebuchadnezzar. Because you know the story in Daniel where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and it bothers him in chapter 2. And he gets all these people around and says, somebody needs to interpret the dream. And they say, well, tell us what the dream is. He says, no, 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 no. If you're worth your salt, you'll be able to tell me what I dreamed and what it meant. And of course, they all said, well, no one can do that. Well, in comes Daniel, the servant of the one living God, who does just that. And he interprets the dream. He interprets the dream of the statue and says that Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. And it points all the way to the end of the Messiah who would come in the kingdom of God that will, that will be the eternal kingdom that reigns. And it will not be Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And you'd think Nebuchadnezzar would have learned his lesson because he, he said, Oh, your God, your God, Daniel, he is, he is the king of all the kings. And he made that profession And then he turns around and has another dream where God, through the dream, says that he is about to be humiliated because of his arrogance. And he calls Daniel again, and Daniel says, I fear to tell you the interpretation of this dream. And may it be for your enemies, but this is the interpretation. And the interpretation is, is that because of his arrogance, because he had built this great kingdom and he'd taken all the credit for it, that God would humiliate him and he would send him out into the field to be, as one preacher said, um, a, a fescue feasting king, looking like a beast and eating grass. And at the end of that, you, Daniel pleads with him, please let your repentance lead you into righteousness so this doesn't happen But the next thing we read in chapter 4 is that he stands. Let me just turn to the passage. He stands in Daniel chapter 4, and he takes credit for all that God has done. Well, I had it marked so I could get to it quickly. Of course, when I want to, I can't. Daniel chapter 4, beginning of verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. That is the dream and its interpretation. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven 
O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and was driven from among men, and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, in his own words here, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever." For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no, none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, the majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselees and my Lord sought me, and I was established in the kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Now that is the picture of every evil ruler in the history of mankind. Unfortunately, not all of them end up where Nebuchadnezzar did. Now, some would argue that Nebuchadnezzar has this pattern that will continue. We just don't know about it in Scripture. If you read on in chapter 5, we just immediately click to um, switch over to the next king of Babylon, and we leave Nebuchadnezzar. But the last words we have in Scripture are a man who has been humbled by God, repented, extols God, and gives him credit for all the glory that God has done through him. Now, Saddam Hussein had read that story all the way to its end. Maybe he would be in a different place than he is now. Saddam Hussein should have listened to the Scriptures. Unfortunately, Nebuchadnezzar should have listened to the Scriptures and what the Scriptures had to say about Assyria the kingdom who ruled before him, because it was all there for Nebuchadnezzar to understand as well. So just as Saddam Hussein should have learned from the scriptures about Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar should have learned the scriptures that, that are partly given to us in Isaiah chapter 10. It's also described in other places what happens to the king of Assyria and the next king, Sennacherib of Assyria as well, that God shows his sovereignty over them. They all should have listened to scripture and things would have turned out better. So the question for us today, will we listen to scripture? Because this isn't just about kings and Assyria and Babylon, is it? This is about where we are, where we stand before the Lord of glory, who is sovereign over all the details of our life and whether we give him glory or whether we take credit ourselves. And oh, so subtle a thing it can be. So this morning we are listening and all those places that we see the king of Assyria saying, I, 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 my, my, me, me. How many times do we say that? about things that God blesses us with in our life. And we take credit for it. And then the first time something goes wrong, who gets credit for that? Why would God do that? Why would God allow that? So this is a message for us in our day, even as it's directed toward the king of Assyria and the judgment that will come upon him. Let's stand as I read our text this morning from Isaiah chapter 10. Beginning in verse 5. <clears throat> ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against the godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? 
is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? Is as my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant king, of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For, he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it? Or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors and under his glory a burning will be kindled. Like the burning fire, the light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, Yahweh will destroy both soul and body and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So in these verses, we are shown five points of comparison between the heavenly king and an earthly king. Five points of comparison between the heavenly king and an earthly king. The first point that we see, the heavenly king has a plan for Assyria. Look at verse 5. The ESV says, ah, Assyria, and it could be that. It's the same Hebrew word that we have seen already as woe. Um, earlier in in these chapters, <clears throat> as as early as chapter ten, verse one, or as late as chapter ten, verse one, uh, but either way, it's it's a lament over Assyria and what they have done, according to how it matches up to what God has intended. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury against a godless nation. I send him, and against the people of my wrath, I command him to take the spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. So here is God taking full um, responsibility for what he is doing to his people because of their disobedience. All that we have already seen in the book of Isaiah, we're bringing it again. We have this revolving door of judgment and blessing, or judgment and relief, judgment and hope. And this is another one of those. But now the sights are turned on to Assyria, that nation that God has already promised. Remember, I will whistle and they will come from the far corners. um, Brings them like bees and talks about Assyria and Egypt. We learned earlier, God has already told us that he has called them to do his bidding. And here he says, this is my intention. You, Assyria, are the rod of my anger. God is a covenant-keeping God. He is faithful to keep the covenant. And his covenant says that he will be the God of his people, and his people will look at him and say, this is our God, and the people will give him obedience. And God has said, when there is obedience, there will be blessing, and when there's disobedience, there will be curses. And so we constantly see this covenant-keeping God before us in the book of Isaiah, this God who is faithful and in the midst of a, a of Israel and the northern kingdom, Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom, being disobedient, God is saying, listen, I'm calling you back to repentance. I'm calling you back to repentance. And if not, what I promised back in the law of the curses of the covenant will fall upon you. And so he says, Assyria, you're the rod of my anger. The staff 
the staff in your hands, Assyria, is my fury. And I am bringing you against a godless nation. Now that's God's people. God, God's people are being called a godless nation because of everything that we have heard already in these first nine, and now we're in our 10th chapter, and how many different ways have we heard about the, the southern kingdom's disobedience and the northern kingdom being lumped right in there. And the northern kingdom is going to fall first, and the southern kingdom falls second, and this is the warning that's being given to the southern kingdom. And now to Assyria, you're doing what I've commanded you to do, but you are doing it in a way that doesn't bring me glory, and I will hold you accountable. That's the overarching truth in our text. He calls his people a godless nation. And he says, I'm sending you to them against the people of my wrath. God's people have deserved his wrath because they are, they are turning away from the God who is their salvation. To take spoil and seize plunder. Literally, to spoil the spoil and plunder the plunder. Reminds you of one of the, the, the sons of Isaiah, doesn't it? Mer Shalal Hajbaz, right? These are the same words that are combined to make his name. This is what God is being so consistent in that he is going to do this and bring this upon them quickly and tread them down like the mire in the streets. Just picture yourself looking at an old, watching an old West movie or a movie set in, in uh, uh, medieval times or in, in London before the streets are paved and when it rains and how the mud builds up and when people walk through that, they're just trampling down the mire in the streets and it gets all over them, but it doesn't stop them. They just continue to push it down further and further. That's the image that's being used. And so this is God's intention. The heavenly king has a plan for Assyria. And this is what he intends for them to do. But he always has limits. God always has limits on the earthly kings. One of those limits is that they do the righteous thing. That they do what God says kings should do. And the other limit is when I'm finished with you, you stop doing what I've called you to do. So the second point of comparison the earthly king has his own plan god has a plan for assyria but the earthly king of assyria has his own plan now throughout this time i'm not sure which king we're talking about and which battle and what time period we're talking about there are some people who think we're we're still talking about tiglath pileser the third some people think we're, we're already moving forward to sennacherib who we'll meet later another assyrian king we'll meet later in the later uh, 30s of the chapters of Isaiah, 35, 34, 36, 37 in there, we'll meet him in there. And we, this is one of the contrasts being set up between this, the, 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 um, the, the kings that we have now and the kings that we have then, both in Assyria and in the southern kingdom. I'm not really sure which one we're talking about. So I'm just leaving the king generic. It could be any of the battles. Remember, we've already learned this historical setting where Assyria has come and they have gone through Samaria, the northern kingdom, and they have come right up to the door of Jerusalem, but they haven't been able to overtake Jerusalem. But there have been many people killed and taken captured, captive in the, from the southern kingdom already. So it could be in there. This could be totally future what's going to happen because we know that, that uh, Sennacherib will meet his end just as God said that the Assyrian kingdom would meet its end. We know that that will happen. But since I'm not exactly sure which time, we just know it's the truth that this is what God intends to do in the scope of history. It's the king of Assyria. So it's the nation who God has said, I want you to go do this, but has done the wrong thing. So look what the earthly king and his motives what do what look what we have revealed in verse 7 verse 5 and 6 tell us what god intends what yahweh has commanded but he that is assyria the king of assyria representing the army and the people but he does not so intend and his heart does not so think so what god has commanded him to do he's got other plans He's got other plans to, do, to destroy more and to take more captivity and to build a larger kingdom for himself. But, the third line in verse 7, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. So God says, come after my people. I will use you as my rod. I will use you as my tool. But he's full of himself and says, I'll take any nation I please and I will destroy them. And look what else he says in verse 8. How do we know this? For he says, so now we're switching as if the king of Assyria is speaking himself. Are not my commanders all kings? 
Now, what's he mean by that? Are not my commanders all kings? So he has overtaken these nations, and the kings of those nations now become his vassals. They are the leaders of the people that now he claims in those countries. So he's probably even leaning to the fact here that he is the king of kings. He is the God. And we're going to see that clearly be developed in the next verses, but it's already here that all of the ones who had power, they're, my, they're now my commanders. They're under my control. I am the head honcho here. Verse 9, is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? So he is naming, in the first of those three couplet, doublets, he is naming towns that he's already taken. He's already set them, or, or he's naming the towns that he will take. In the second, he's naming the towns that he's already taken. And he's saying, if I've taken these, why can't I take these? And as he names them, each one gets closer to Jerusalem. Each one geographically comes closer. And so his threat is, no one has stopped me yet. And why would I be stopped on these nations if I have already taken these nations? And they are under my power and under my control. And he ends with Samaria and Damascus. And those have been the key players, right, in this conflict. The, the northern kingdom and Syria. That's these key players. They're joining leagues against each other or with each other against Assyria. And they want the southern kingdom to join them against Assyria. And they don't. The southern kingdom doesn't. The southern kingdom, instead of trusting God or building an alliance with these people, he goes, he's going to go right to the king of Assyria and try to go to the head honcho and, and mollify him to be his protection. And he says, I've done all of these. What's to stop me? But then look at verse 11. He even gets more insulting to God's people and mostly to God himself. Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? No, I skipped a verse. Go to verse 10. As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of these idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? In other words, these gods were more powerful than your gods, and I overcame them, which means what? I'm greater than their gods, and since their gods... This is, a, this is a, a pagan speaking, right? Since their gods are greater than your gods, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, what makes you think that I can't overtake them? Because I, as God, am stronger than your God. So he's right in the face of Yahweh, his creator. He's right in the face of the one who has given him his marching orders, and he's claiming to be greater than him because he looks at idols and puts Yahweh on the same par as idols. Now, in one sense, he's saying, listen, Israel, Israel and Judah, you're not near as good idolaters as everybody else. And that's in one way good, is it not? They don't have as many idols. Why? Because they worship the one true God when they're worshiping as they're supposed to. Now, that sets them up for great victory if they trust in the one true God and the king of Assyria for great defeat for trusting in who? Himself. As if he is God and greater than Yahweh. Now, even just stopping right here, if we just stop here and consider, how many times have we taken credit for something that God has done through us when he's called us to a task? How many times have we done that? We've taken credit for it. There's been no mention of God's sovereign leading. It doesn't matter whether it's success in your job, success as a mother or father, husband, wife, parent, success in evangelism, success, success as a Bible teacher. It doesn't matter what it is. How many times do we take credit for that using I and my instead of what God has done through us? Now, I'm, I'm not advocating that we become so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, that we can never use the word I. I I'm, not, I'm not saying that. God uses our giftings, right? He uses our passions. He uses our efforts. If we're going to be good preachers, we have to study hard to be good preachers. If we're going to be uh, good disciplers, we have to know the scriptures and know them well. Our efforts, God blesses by making the word go forth from us in powerful ways. So I'm not saying that we can never say that I discipled someone. Or, or that I preached a sermon. But where my heart is saying, 
what a good sermon I preached today. Instead of being like Spurgeon, who I believe it was Spurgeon, who would walk up the steps to his pulpit with his knees knocking out of fear because he was getting ready to handle the word of God and said, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Because he knew without the unction of God, his words meant nothing. They had no power whatsoever if God did not bless them and fill them up in the hearts of his people. Well, this happens to us all the time. We teach this to our children too often as well. Let me show you how. You can do anything you want to do. What bad advice is that? We should be teaching them, you can do whatever God calls you to do. Starting with the truth of the scriptures, amen? Know the scriptures, live by them, love God, and obey. And when you don't obey, repent. If we could teach our children that, wouldn't our world be a better place? And yet we give them this false hope that they can be anything they want. It's like telling me that I could play NBA basketball if I want. Could I do that? Not a chance. I can't even do that on a video game for crying out loud. And yet we give this false assumption of what do we build in them? They can accomplish whatever they set their mind to. And we want to teach them to work hard. We want to teach them to apply themselves. But we want to teach them that everything that they do is to the glory of God and not themselves. Because we have to teach humility in them. Now the reason we're not teaching it to our children a lot of times is because we haven't learned that lesson ourselves. We take credit where God has said, I want you to go do this. I want you to be faithful in this area. And then when we have a chance to give him glory, we forget that he exists. Now, I could go into a million different ways, but I know the Spirit is telling you right now where you have done that before. Now, it may have been out of omission. It it may not have been your desire to take credit for for everything that's done, to steal God's glory, which he shares with no other. It may not have been your desire to do that, but we live sometimes in pragmatic, secular lives. That we come here and we talk about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. When the pastor calls when you're sick and you've got all the right answers of how you're trusting Jesus, but then when you hang up the phone, you fall to pieces again because you're not trusting Jesus. You're suffering. And when somebody comes alongside you to help you suffer better because we need that from the body, you push them away because you have all the right answers. Thank you. So we may not intend to do it, but how often are we void of giving glory to God at the same time we are thankful for what he has done in us? Have I gone from preaching to meddling quite enough already? And I'm only in verse 11. So So this Assyrian king is playing God, right? That's what he's doing. He's playing God. All the kings of the earth, they're my footstools. He's just playing God. And that's what we do When we step into that role, we play God. And there's absolutely no reason for us to do that as redeemed, blood-bought believers. Well, look at verse 12. Verse 12 is the center of all of this, right? If your version is set up the way I think it should be in your margins and and the way it is spaced, verse 12, verse 5 through 11 is set in poetic form, kind of indented with... uh, with, uh, Uh, couplets and triplets of verses set aside. And then verse 13 through 19 is set up in a poetic form as well, but verse 12 is narrative. It's God is bursting into this judgment picture and saying, this is my plan. I've told you what to do, Assyria, but you don't intend to do that. It's not your heart. It's not your plans. You think you're doing what you want to do, but let me tell you what reality is. Verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. So what is the work he's going to finish? He's going to finish judgment on the people who are disobedient and salvation of the remnant. That's his work, right? It's his work all the way through. Those who oppose him, those who do not trust in him, walk away from their means of salvation. He will judge according to the covenant promises that have been made. But he also has a remnant, elect from the foundation of the world, that he will preserve. And we're going to learn about that remnant in this setting starting next week in verse 20. But this week we're talking about his intentions. And he says, I have work to do and I'm using you to do it. And when I finish that work, I'm turning my judgment toward you. 
for what I just said about your plans, but also the arrogant heart that you have and the boastful look in your eyes. The arrogant heart and the boastful look in your eyes. Verse 13 starts with four. So this is going to be the explanation of why this assessment by God of the king of Assyria is true. But one thing we have to take comfort in right here before we even move on is that God will accomplish his purposes. Amen? Always. God can never be thwarted. He can never be turned away from what he intends to do. No matter how crazy it looks around us, no matter how much it looks like evil is overtaking and God is being trampled underfoot and it's actually God being trampled as the mire in the streets, no matter how much it looks like that to us, we raise our vision up above that to the truth of the scriptures and know that God cannot be thwarted. He is always working out his will, his way, summing all things up in Jesus, advancing his kingdom, saving the elect, moving forward with everything he intends to do, and no one can thwart him. And in fact, the more people think that they are thwarting him, the more their judgment is building up against him. So God, when we say God is sovereign, there are no qualifiers on that, right? We don't need to say he's sovereign over this or over that. If he's sovereign, he's sovereign. There's, There's no one else who is, and there's no way and no form that he is not sovereign. Otherwise, he's not sovereign. So we 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 hear this all the time that, well, yes, God is sovereign, but 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 our government, it's we're not a Christian nation. As if God is not sovereign over our nation. And he is sovereign over our nation. How do we know that? Donald Trump was elected president and did things that glorified God from an unglorifying God heart. Now that, that's God in all his glory saying, I'm going to give you who you deserve here. And I'm going to give you who you deserve now. I'm going to give you who I want to be king now. And I'm giving you who I want to be king in the last election and the election before that. And in the upcoming election, I'm in control of all of that. How many times do people give glory to Donald Trump instead of the God who put him in office? I'm not judging Donald Trump's heart. I don't know whether he's a believer or not, but he doesn't act like a believer. But God set him up to do what God intended to do, and he did it. Trump doesn't get credit for that. And I'm not anti-Trump now. Don't, Don't think this is political. I'm trying to draw our attention to what is real in front of us. God is the one who did that and accomplished good things through him. Not all good things. Not everything he did was good. Like you, everything you do is good, right? Right? No one does that, but God was glorified in some of his decisions. His people were granted a reprieve of what we're living in now. Instead of happening four years ago, it happened now. Why he did that, I don't know, but he's in charge. Trump doesn't get credit, and neither do you if you voted for him. And what we have now, God has placed there. And what we have next, God has placed there. Now listen, we're still responsible, right? We're still responsible to make wise decisions and cast our vote as members of of this nation that's a responsibility of us. We're still responsible to do that and to do so according to biblical terms. And God is the one who sets up kings. We're going to learn more about this providence in just a moment. But God will do as he pleases. And for that, we should be so grateful because we know that God in his character will never do anything evil. He'll never do anything unloving. He'll never do anything unwise. He'll never do anything unjust because his character is the perfection of all of those attributes. So we just pause and take comfort that he will accomplish everything that he intends to and constantly reflecting on our own life to see if we're taking credit for what he deserves the credit for. Well, the heavenly king has a plan for Assyria, but the earthly king has his own plan. The heavenly king will use the earthly king for his purposes and then judge the arrogant and boastful earthly king. That's what we just covered in verse 12, which I don't think I read. The fourth point of comparison is in verse 13 and 14, verses 13 and 14. The earthly king boasts of his strength and wisdom, and so proves he deserves the judgment that God promises. Look at verse 13. 
For he says, so the four connects verse 13 to what had just been said. God will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. How do we know he's arrogant with boastful look in his eyes? For he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding. So he's taking credit for the the strength of him and his army. He's taking credit for wisdom and understanding because he has been able to attack and overcome these nations. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. So remove the boundaries of people. In other words, he overcomes the kings, takes over those nations, and makes them part of his boundaries, part of his nation. They don't have their own boundaries for their nation anymore. They're now part of his kingdom. And he plunders their treasures. In the case of Judah, he doesn't even have to go to battle to plunder the treasures, does he? Because as we'll see, uh, we've already seen, and we'll see again, that the king, of it, the king of Judah, just he just goes forward and says, here, take all the treasures, just protect me. Please protect me, but take all the wealth. So the king plunders the treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. Doesn't matter how powerful they are in their earthly setting, he's stronger. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples, and as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Just picture, isn't that vivid imagery? Just picture yourself walking through the woods and you see at eye level a bird's nest full of eggs and how easy it is for you to take the eggs out of that nest or destroy the nest. And the and no one is there to stop you. And that's the image he uses. There's not even a bird that came to protect their young in this imagery because I did what I wanted. Do you see how he's claiming sovereignty over? He's sitting himself in the place of God. And therefore, God says he will punish the speech and the arrogant heart of the king, which is demonstrated in these three verses. Unfortunately, this is demonstrated all around us. Just, just a couple of weeks ago in, at a, a, a gathering of a, of a large denomination, there was a man who stood forth. There was a Southern Baptist convention in Anaheim. I'm not against the Southern Baptists. I have Southern Baptist education. I've pastored Southern Baptist churches. This is not about a denomination. It is about one man who did just this. Rick Warren is the pastor of the largest Southern Baptist church in the nation. I don't know how many thousands of people it has. He's been pastor there for 40-some years. And he was under observation, should have been kicked out of the SBC because they ordained women as pastors. And they formed a study committee, and the study committee came back and said, well, we we want to form another study committee so that we can define what the word pastor means. So they just punted. And so they allowed Rick Warren to come and have a place on the stage. Rick Warren's church is in Orange County, and so that's where the convention was. And I'm just going to read you a couple of quotes from him. And I want you to have Nebuchadnezzar or the king of Assyria or anybody else in mind. And I'm not doing this to run Rick Warren down. I'm using him as an example of how easy it is to take the place of God. So here's a man who's been in a church for 40-some years. And it's a large church. It has grown gigantically. And he says things like this. He starts out, says, Welcome to Orange County. 149 Southern Baptist churches here. 90 of them started by Saddleback Church. That's the name of his church. Kay, that's his wife, Kay and I could have not built Saddleback Church to its size and influence in any other denomination. So he and his wife are taking credit for building the church. And you say, well, aren't you just picking at words? I am not picking at words. If you have the mic in the largest Protestant denomination at their national convention, and you want to come brag on the size of your church, you should brag on what God has done through you in your church. Not brag about a denomination he belongs to that allowed him to do many things that frankly were unbiblical and allow him to do that. And it's he and his wife who have built the church. 
I love Southern Baptists. I am a fourth-generation Southern Baptist pastor. My great-grandfather was led to Christ by Charles Spurgeon and I sent, and sent to America as a church planter. Saddleback was sponsored by the North American Mission Board, which is the Southern Baptist uh, arm of planting churches in North America. I served on staff at the California State Convention and Texas State Convention as a teenager. Billy Graham picked me up when I was 18 and for the next 52 years mentored me because I started 16 years old, hired by the California Baptist Convention to preach youth revivals, and I had preached over 120 Harvest Crusades before I was 20. Billy took this long-haired, skinny Californian and mentored me for the next 52 years. Do you hear God mentioned at all? Do you hear the names of famous individuals mentioned to prop him up as someone worth listening to? This man should be fearful. Because of Southern Baptist polity, I was allowed to serve one church for life. No, God allowed you to serve one church for life. And grew it, and I grew it to become the largest church in this convention. Because Southern Baptist gave me a passion for evangelism and mission, we, that is their church, baptized 56,631 new believers. And as an SBC church, sent 26,869 members overseas to 197 nations. Now, you know what happened next, right? Yeah. Applause. Have you, met, have you heard God mentioned once? Because Southern Baptist taught me the value of membership covenant, 78,157 members of our church signed our membership covenant after taking a four-hour membership class. Because Southern Baptist taught me to emphasize the priority of Bible study, we now have 9,173 Bible studies in homes in 162 Southern California cities. Because Southern Baptist taught me the value of church planting, we planted 90 churches in Orange County alone and literally thousands throughout the world. Because Southern Baptist taught me to honor and love the local church, I've had the privilege for 43 years of training 1.1 million pastors, and he stops, and there's silence, and he waits for what? The applause. And he gets the applause, and then he says, sorry, friends, that's more than all the Southern Baptist seminaries put together. Now, I don't usually name names from our pulpit, but this is an example of the king of Assyria. This is an example of a man who's been richly blessed in his ministry through the church. And I didn't hear him give glory to God at all. But I heard him stand and say, I, 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 over and over and over. And he did it publicly with no regret. How easy it is for us to slip. Now, now do I think Rick Warren doesn't give glory to God? I'm not saying that. I'm telling you what he said in front of a live mic in front of the national convention of a denomination that has 47,000 churches. It's easy for us to drift into it. And there's nothing new under the sun. The king of Assyria did it. The king of Babylon did it. Every uh, despot ruler has done the same thing. And God doesn't change. And he's still working. And so now we, as his people, stand before him, and we want to make sure at every turn we are conscious of how we speak, that, that, our, that we can never stand in, 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 be front, in front of God and have him say that we have speech that comes from an arrogant heart, that we have boastful look in our eyes. Well... The last point of comparison, the heavenly king is the holy one who will devour the earthly king as fire devours a forest. Look at verse 15. Shall the axe boast over him who hews it, who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? I mean, you see what the imagery is here, right? Should the tool be glorified over the creator who uses the tool? Should the man who leads a nation that is ungodly glorify himself when the righteous creator of the universe is the one wielding him as an axe? And he's boasting and magnifying himself. 
as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Now, those are the terms that we already learned in verse 5, right? Assyria is the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. And yet this rod and this staff rises up and tries to lift and, and to overcome the one who wields it, the one who is the almighty creator. Therefore, God says, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among the stout warriors. Now, this will actually happen in Sennacherib's army. There, there's a sickness that overtakes them in their defeat. And under his glory, a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel, that is Yahweh, will become a fire and his holy one a flame. And I think since this is his holy one, this is where we're referring to the Messiah, the one who is yet to come, the one we've already met in the pages of Isaiah. This is referring to the one who will come and God will give all authority to judge. He will give all authority in heaven and earth. He's the one who comes and lives and dies so that men would have life. He is the one who will come back and be the final judge of the nations who are still against him. And it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day, quickly. Everything that they have, the Assyrians, it will be burned up. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, Yahweh will destroy both soul and body. So this destruction will be almost complete. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. That draws us back to the beginning of this description in verse 16 of the wasting sickness. The remnant of the trees of his forest, that is of Assyria. We're not to the remnant of Israel yet. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. A little two, three, four-year-old can count how many will be left. And the, the images of the trees again, remember this throughout Isaiah has the idea of boastfulness and, and loftiness, and God will cut them down. And we might be asking ourselves, now wait a minute, if Assyria is doing only what God has commanded, and yet God is going to turn around and judge Assyria for their wickedness, how is that fair, right? How is that fair for God to do? And yet all through Scripture, God claims this authority for himself that he is the one who is sovereign. He does as he pleases. He shares his glory with no one. The kings of the earth can line themselves up against it. We heard that already and from Acts, um, quoting Psalm 2. They can line their, 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 all their might up against and shake their fists at him. And he who sits in the heavens laughs because he is the one who is sovereign. All history flows according to his command. We also saw in chapter 4, we see it clearly in chapter 2 of, of Acts as well, that even though these are the sinful acts of men, they are foreordained by God. The crucifixion of Christ was foreordained by the, by the preexistent foreknowledge and predestined plans of God himself. And yet the people who did it are still guilty. It's the tenor of Scripture because this is the sovereignty of God. We call this providence. This is God's providence. It's his overarching control of all of history. And God shows himself in history to be control of every single event, never guilty of sin, and yet those who are guilty of sin and rejecting him are responsible unless they have the one who has come to absorb that penalty, Jesus Christ himself. And it's the tenor of scripture all the way through. Our, the, the second London Baptist Confession brings this great in chapter 5. I'm not going to read all of chapter 5, but I'm going to read two, three sections of chapter 5 on divine providence. It helps us summarize the scripture passages that show us what this divine providence is. This is one of the greatest uh, doctrines of encouragement for us as believers, that God is a sovereign God and providentially rules everything. Everything that happens, nothing is outside of his control. God, the good creator of all things, says Second London Baptist Convention, uh, uh, um, Confession of 1689, under the title of Divine Providence, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things. 
from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, to the end for which they were created, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Isn't that a beautiful statement? This is the statement that says God controls everything ever created and he does it according to his own wonderful, perfect character. And so it can be trusted. In the second paragraph, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decrees of God, the first cause, okay, the foreknowledge and decrees of God are the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly. In other words, everything he decrees to come to pass will come to pass. So that there is not anything befalls any by chance. Isn't that a great thing? Nothing that happens to you happens by chance. There's no luck. There's no chance. It is God's sovereign providential rule over all things. Even down to the fact of whether you take another breath. He is sovereign. So that there is not anything befalls any by chance or without his providence. Yet by the same providence, he ordereth them to fall out accordingly to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. In other words, God does not wind us up and set us free, right? He uses the actions that we have. He uses the acts of nature. He uses the things that happen naturally in his created world to accomplish his sovereign providential movement. He doesn't negate them unless he chooses to, but he doesn't negate them. Everything that happens does not negate our participation in his causing things to happen the way he wants them. Because he calls us to work. He calls us to preach. He calls us to teach and spread the gospel. He he calls us to, to pursue sanctification. He calls us to trust in him. He calls us to do things, doesn't he? When we don't do them, there are consequences. When we don't obey him, when we do obey him, there are good consequences. We may still suffer. As Peter says, what's he say? Make sure if you suffer, you suffer for doing good. Don't suffer for doing evil. But God does not overcome them because when we say he's sovereign, he is really sovereign. Even the second causes are not out of his control. He uses them as he sees fit. One more paragraph. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence. So that is his good character shows itself in his providence that his determinate counsel extendeth even extended itself even to the first fall and all other sinful actions, both of angels and men. In other words, nothing is outside of his providential oversight. And that not by a bare permission, and that not by a bare permission, which also he most wisely and powerfully boundeth and otherwise ordereth and governeth. So in other words, he's not just sitting back and saying, okay, I'm going to let that happen. He is overseeing it, governing it, causing it. When we say he's sovereign, we don't leave anything out. In a manifold dispensation of his most holy ends, yet, yet so as the sinfulness of their acts proceedeth only from the creatures and not from God, who being most holy and righteous neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. So he is perfectly sovereign and he, use, he even uses your sin. Is your view of God's providence that strong? That he even uses your sin for his glory? And you're still responsible for your sin. If you're in Christ, you won't die for that sin. You you won't face eternal death because Christ has already paid the price for that. But you may have earthly consequences and he still uses it for your good. It's called discipline of his children, right? Whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and their good. You hear me say that phrase all the time. It comes right from the confessions. Well, we could talk more about this, but I think this confession does a great job of giving us, instead of me reading 65 scripture passages, they have summarized it in a way that has stood the test of time to bring the glory and grandeur of the providential sovereign control of our God over the universe. And yet men are guilty before him when they sin. 
And without Christ, they will meet destruction just as the king of Assyria will meet destruction. It's going to happen the same way. It doesn't, it, God does never change. He, he is never one that says, well, I think today I'll have a blue light special. And everybody, it doesn't matter whether you trust in my son or not, I'll kind of let you in the club. Between now and when the blue light quits flashing. And yet there are people, and maybe you are in this place, that live as if God is not sovereign. I've told you this story before of preaching as a guest preacher in a church the Sunday after 9-11. And I preached that God was not surprised by evil men flying planes into buildings. And not that he just stood back and said, well, I think I'll take a vacation today and let the evil happen. God used it. And God caused it according to his own providential will and I was about drummed out of town. I started the teaching in a Sunday school class, and one of the deacons, I didn't think he was going to let me preach. I thought by the time we got from Sunday school to the worship service, he would have asked me not to preach because he was so against any idea of God's sovereignty because he didn't understand theology. He was so against any idea that God would have been the first cause behind that, just like he is everything else. He will use it for his glory. He's not guilty of the sin, and the men who flew the planes into buildings were guilty of their sin. He, couldn't have a, he didn't have a place for that. I wasn't ever asked back to preach in that church. But that is biblical truth. It is biblical teaching. So where are we? Where are we? Well, the first thing we need to know, if you, if you are here professing Christ, then this holy one, this holy one who is aflame, this is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is shown in scripture by John the Baptist, who says, I come and I baptize for repentance of sin, but there's one that comes after me who will baptize by what? By fire and the Holy Spirit. And the fire is judgment. The very next verse talks about judgment. So this is one who comes. He comes to carry out the judging that God the Father has said all through the Old Testament will happen. At specific times, like to the kings of Assyria and then Babylon and other kings in the Bible, but also all that pointing to the final judgment when Christ will return. And the only people who are safe on that judgment are the ones who have had that holy fire directed to them in grace. The ones who have said, Jesus, I believe that what you did was for my good. And I trust in your work. Because when Jesus came the first time, he came not to judge, right? Clearly, he came to save. He came to redeem people by living a perfect life and dying on the cross and raising on the third day. He will come back again and judge all those who have neglected him, all those who have said, I don't need you. I am my own God. Everybody around me, are my, the, the, these commanders are now, these kings are now my commanders in my life. If anyone who stands before God on that day without the work of Christ on their behalf will meet the fire of judgment. But we have the Savior held out to us, even in this verse, condemning the king of Assyria. Because it is Jesus who's been given all authority to rule. Daniel chapter 7 reiterated in the New Testament. What did Jesus uh, um, say before, was it before Pilate? I think I have it written down. Let me make sure I'm not using the wrong king here. Before Pilate. Pilate says what? Don't you know that I have the authority over you? I mean, I can save you. I can, I can, whatever I want to do, I have the authority. And what does he say? You would have no authority if it wasn't granted to you. So this isn't just an Old Testament context. This is Jesus saying, I'm about the will of my Father, and he's using you right now to accomplish his will, and you don't have any authority that he hasn't already given you. And that should have brought him to his knees. But it doesn't. He passes the buck and washes his hands. So this is the Jesus who comes to offer salvation who burns as a fire of judgment against those who reject him and burns for our salvation for those who receive him because he is the one who provides his salvation for the elect. Now, we're going to learn much more about the elect next time, starting in verse 20. But today is the time that we have to ask yourself, you have to ask yourself before God, where do I need to surrender my glory to your glory? What ways in my life am I taking credit for what you have done? What ways in my life am I saying me and I instead of you? What, what ways in my life, maybe I don't even realize it, but what ways in my life am I doing that? 
And if you're not a believer here this morning, the first place to do that is to let go of your own salvation. It's to let go of you saying, I'm good by myself. To let go of that because that is the ultimate stealing of glory. And you will pay the price on judgment day. You're still breathing because God is full of grace. So take this time now and repent before him. Give him glory for what he's done in Christ to provide salvation for you. And the rest of us, this just fine-tunes us for our sanctification, doesn't it? It fine-tunes us. How many things will we keep ourselves out of trouble and not need discipline if we're constantly reminding ourselves that all glory goes to God and he is not going to share it with anyone? And that's what we want to do anyway. So the message of our text today, just like the king of Assyria will be judged for his arrogance, so will we without Christ. With Christ, we have the ability to crucify our arrogance and give glory to God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word, for this constant reminder in the book of Isaiah of your holiness, of your righteousness, the constant reminder that you are the sovereign one, the holy one of Israel. All of the nods that we've had so far and all of the glory we will see in the future of your son, the promised Messiah, who will come and rule and reign, will come and live and die, who is now seated at your right hand. Father, we are asking you to make these truths more glorious to us, that they're not just stories out of an Old Testament book, but they are rules and guides for our life that bring us into pleasure with you, that increase the joy of our life. For when you overwhelmed us in our sin and you gave us a new heart, that heart beats after you. It is passionate after you. It is passionate after righteousness. And you've given us the ability to crucify the sin that says we don't want that, to crucify the sin that says we want to be in control, to crucify the sin that says that we want the glory, that we want the credit, to crucify the sin that we want what we want instead of what you want. You've given us that ability in Christ, so manifest yourself, Father, as a reminder to us of all the glory that we desire to bring you. For it's not to us, but the glory is to you for the sake of your name. So thank you for this in Jesus' name, amen.